This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Is big business a threat to free markets and consumer choice? This question lies at the heart of antitrust regulation, extending from the 1890 Sherman Antitrust Act, targeting Gilded Age robber barons, to the current U.S. Department of Justice suit against Google for anti-competitive practices. Indeed, the concern that as firms grow larger, they increasingly pose a risk to consumer welfare was perfectly distilled in a recent tweet by Senator Elizabeth Warren when she expressed her fear that a conglomerate's proposed acquisition of Subway could lead to a sandwich shop monopoly. In the past, one need only remember the alarm bells that were sounded before Amazon acquired Whole Foods and as Google was acquiring Fitbit. And yet, despite these warnings of politicians and the dearth of successful legal challenges to these mergers, the American economy seems remarkably free of any large conglomerate control of a single industry or market. Given the absence of any large firm dominance and the abundance of consumer choice in the U.S. economy, what should the role of constructive antitrust enforcement be? What characteristics of company mergers or acquisitions should warrant government intervention? And what substantive concerns, if any, might warrant a politician's tweets about a sandwich monopoly? My guest today is Dr. Brian Albrecht, chief economist at the International Center for Law and Economics, a think tank that studies the nexus of economic principles and the law. Dr. Albrecht has written extensively on antitrust law and enforcement, and has examined the degree to which public concerns over corporate size and power match the actual harm to consumers the critics predict. He will share with us the definitions and criteria for determining whether a firm has monopolistic market power and how that rubric can be applied to firms as large as Google or as small as a local sandwich shop. When I return, I'll be joined by economist and antitrust expert, Dr. Brian Albrecht. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Chief Economist at the International Center for Law and Economics, Dr. Brian Albrecht. Welcome to Hubwonk, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited about this conversation. Okay, great. Well, we're going to talk about the concepts of antitrust, why so-called trust can be economically harmful, uh, and what government regulators can do to curtail any harm they may pose to consumers. But before we get there, I, I want you know, you're, this is your first visit on, uh, pod, on the podcast. Uh, so uh, I hadn't heard until fairly recently anything about the uh, International Center for Law and Economics. So uh, let's start off by uh, letting you introduce to our listeners uh, what you are and what you guys do over there. Yeah, so at the International Center for Law and Economics, I've been there about a year and a half. I was a professor before that. Uh, we work on a lot of areas within policy, but our real goal is to bring the tools of law and economics, which is this kind of blend of legal scholarship, but along with economic analysis. Basically think what can economic tools, economic reasoning inform us about the law. That's a framework that developed in in the academy over the last uh, you know 60 years or so and try to bring that to policy questions. I tend to work on antitrust, which is something that we'll talk about obviously today, but you know, economics has been applied to all sorts of things, tort, you know, lawsuits, first amendment type of uh, work. We have people on our team that work on telecommunications, spectrum, that sort of stuff. So we kind of think of law and economics as a perspective. The thing that makes us unique as a think tank and why we're not you know, the world's biggest think tank is because we kind of have a niche thing where our perspective is our methodology, our 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 academic research, the the tools that we bring to answer these questions. That's what makes us unique versus a particular policy, you know, answer that we're going to come to. Or really, the tools of economics are what going to drive our approach. 
Okay, that's good. I found it very useful. I found uh, what I've read there very, very useful. Uh, your tools are, are useful. Um, so let's talk about, um, uh, you said your expertise is very much on um, antitrust or the theory, uh, price theory, competition and innovation. I want to have you on to, uh, to talk about antitrust theory and practice. Uh, it's a complex issue. Uh, it's in the news right now. The Department of Justice cases, uh, you know, against uh, behemoths like Google make headlines. Uh, but I, I, I playfully invited you this week uh, to uh, talk about this issue because our own uh, senior senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, had an interesting tweet that I thought put a smile on uh, a lot of people's faces, uh, particularly economists, when she uh, tweeted, I, I want to get it right, quote, we don't need another private equity deal that could lead to higher food prices for consumers. The FTC is right to investigate whether the purchase of Subway by the same firm that owns Jimmy John's and McAllister Deli creates a sandwich shop monopoly, unquote. So, uh, you know, for our listeners who hadn't heard that, um, you know, that's pretty provocative. There's a lot going on in that tweet, but I don't want to get too deep right away. I want to take a step back. Pioneer Institute, my think tank, is very uh, an advocate of free markets. Uh, I think uh, it's fair to say you would be as well. What, for our listeners' benefit, is free market and, and why is it good for us? Yeah, so free market can mean a lot of different things. And it, from an economic perspective, we kind of imagine this idealized free market. But I think broadly speaking, we think of markets where people can buy and trade as they wish. You know, if I want to buy that apple, I can go to the store and buy it as long as I can find someone willing to sell it. Uh, and is that kind of a, a general principle or a general way in which people accumulate things the way people make decisions we're going to call that a free market there's going to be lots of subtleties about how much regulation is involved but i think it's fair to say that you know if i want to get something i go to a store i go online i trade voluntarily with other people that's a major part of how i acquire the things in my life that i want to acquire the material things the the economic things i want to acquire that's a, a free market and you know sometimes things Lots of regulations out there. Some of them are meant to kind of enhance markets. We'll talk about antitrust again. You know, some of them are really meant to hinder and kind of promote something else, like you know maybe safety or something. Uh, but but broadly speaking, I think I think we can all agree that markets, the way that we interact and the way that we trade freely, is different than under societies throughout history where that was not true, or or you know more recently where governments are more involved in particular production and distribution of goods. So we kind of have these, again, the, there's idealized distinctions, but we have this, the U.S. The way trade happens in the U.S. for us, you know, uh, and the way we accumulate goods is fundamentally different than it was 300 years ago, kind of anywhere in the world, or let's say 50 years ago in, in the Soviet Union. That Okay, there's a meaningful distinction between markets and non-markets. Fair, fair enough. And and I, 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 you know, it was a loaded question, very big yeah. open-ended question, but yeah. it, I wanted to really tease out, it, it, for the purposes of our com, uh, conversation, it's a search, you say, it's a free to buy what you want and sell what you want. And ultimately, the uh, consumer is trying to optimize his uh, his results by finding the best products at the cheapest mm -hmm. price. And the producers are trying to optimize their results by having the most consumers buy, you know, at the, at the best price. So mm -hmm. uh, we've got this equilibrium and this tension naturally between buyers and sellers. But really, at, at the end of the day, uh, freedom to access the market, either as a consumer or as a producer, is really what keeps that market free. So that's my segue to asking you another loaded question is when uh, markets aren't free, uh, and we're going to talk specifically about trust, or or I'll use a more commonly understood term, monopoly or monopolistic mm -hmm. groups, when, when producers 
have control over the market. That is to say, uh, they don't act fairly either towards the consumer or to their fellow producers or competition. Speak more about what is a monopoly and why is that a bad thing? Yeah, so you know, monopoly is another loaded word that has lots of of uh, connotations. That's why uh, Senator Warren used the word monopoly and not some more jargony thing that maybe was a little more accurate. You throw this idea of a monopoly that has all the control. And the basic idea of a monopoly actually goes back in history. I'm not a historian, I'm an economist, so forgive the details here. But, but you know, it goes back in history to government-granted monopolies, government said that you are the one organization that could, you know, have this job or operate this sort of industry. And so it was a government granted, uh, uh, you know, license to be the sole person, the mono, the only one. Okay. And over time, that that word has evolved to just mean kind of big, even if there's a lot of other ones, monopoly is the big one, the one with, you know, with uh, at a point in time, the most consumers, the most revenue, the most whatever it is. And that kind of flips it. In some sense, it flips the the coming from a free market or or you know state point of view. But the modern form of monopoly kind of flips things on its head. So in the old world, you convince the government, you convince the king to give you, you know, sole control. The way now in relatively free markets. The way now to get the most consumers and become the monopoly is by pleasing consumers, right? That, that the reason that Google has 90% of the search results is because that they most people think of them as the best search engine. The reason that Amazon has whatever percentage of online retail is because they've convinced the most amount of consumers. So it's going back to your point, it's a consumer-centric uh uh outcome versus a government-granted privilege. And so there's quite a big difference. In the way that we use the word today, some people kind of use it negatively versus, you know, historically what monopoly meant. Now, the reason that we kind of keep those connected is there's a concern that, yes, you maybe you became large because you you uh, you satisfy a lot of customers. You you know, you want you won a lot of business in a legitimate way. But at some point, you can then become so powerful that somehow you distort that relationship and this idea that that this was a voluntary agreement no longer is true once you reach a certain size or you've knocked out enough competitors that there might be something that kind of gets in the way of this being this uh, totally free market ease of entry idea of which, you know, now you're really competing on, on you're, you're no longer competing on kind of even ground. So, okay, so um, again, just to clarify this, because yeah. we're talking about monopoly, a, a term, I don't want to drag back into the sandwich shop issue, but imagine uh, that, again, it was in, intentionally provocative to use the word uh, sandwich mm -hmm. shop monopoly. We'll mm -hmm. accept that. But imagine, you know, in, in today's market, uh, what it would mean to be a sandwich shop monopoly or have control, in a sense, be able to, uh, what she asserts is, affect the price of lunch uh, mm -hmm. by having so many sandwich shops. What would that involve? I mean, if, if, effectively, it would have to say we'd have to have a, a line share of all the sandwich shops, but also you'd also have to have reasonable substitutes if, uh, for, for, you know, taken away, which is going to the deli counter and buying sandwich meat. But but say say more about why monopolies or should not be a word that is thrown around too lightly. It really takes a lot to have monopolistic power, not monopolist status, but not monopolist power to control prices. Yeah, so it's you know, all of those examples that I gave of the current monopolies 
aren't actually monopolies. There are multiple sellers in all these cases. There's multiple search engines. And so now if we're going to extend the word monopoly to mean, well, actually more, there could be more than one. Well, how many? I don't know. Is 20% enough? Is 30% enough? It's kind of an arbitrary line between what we call a monopoly and what's not. Like in antitrust, sometimes it's very common for 30% of a market, however you've defined that. Let's say you'd say it's, you know, sandwich shops have 30% of the market in terms of revenue makes you a monopoly. Well, 30% is a long ways from 100. I don't care. I'm not that good at math, but I can tell you that those are pretty different. Uh, so economists have a different language that, also shows up in antitrust amongst lawyers of an idea of, of monopoly power or market power, which is a little bit separate there because there are relations, of course, but it's this idea that you can kind of raise prices if you decide to, basically, that they're, that they're not constrained by competition. So the problem with using the word monopoly is you need to define what the market is, and then you can define whether you're a monopoly or not. To give an example, I am the monopoly, me and my co-author are the monopoly sellers of our newsletter, but we have no market power. We can't charge insane prices because there's a million other newsletters out there that we're competing with. I've just defined the market to be newsletters called economic forces. Okay. Therefore, I have the sole control over that. We have the sole control over that. We're the monopolist. Well, that's not what we really care about. You know, we care about power. We care about something about, you know, unevening bargaining turns maybe, or, or, or something that ultimately hurts consumers, you know, an action by the producers that hurts consumers. And so I, the monopoly language, it's so pervasive. I use it a lot because it is so pervasive, but ultimately I think it's, it, it hides a lot of the, the, Important stuff, which is, yes, can with this merger, with this acquisition, with that, you know, collusion, like, are we hurting customers or are we helping customers? And that's comes along with market power, monopoly power. All right. I, I want to distill the concept out then. Uh, you're you're yeah. right. These vague terms and we're sort of we're, we're straddling the line between technical economists and uh, yeah. lay people and the connotations mm -hmm. attached to each of these terms we're throwing around. But I, I want to tease out sort of uh, our, our listeners probably can detect my uh, sort of intuition or bias to, against the fear of monopoly. Uh, um, but let's let's talk then. Let's do the opposite and say, give me an example of where a firm has shown true monopolistic power, which is to say if so much such a large share of the market and such hostility or such such a moat around them that uh, that free competition can't enter and consumers actually get hurt. This is a question I don't know the answer to, but what would you, you know, offer as a clear example of where the government needed to and perhaps did step in and you know, divide up a company or, or, or curtail a company's activity where it saw clearly that its monopolistic power hurt consumers? Yeah, so, so, so to like transition from, from what we think of these silly examples or, or maybe give another segue is, you know, uh, if you give if you give sole ownership or, or sole control of, let's say, the local power distribution to one company that in the United States and in most places that I'm aware of comes with a bunch of regulations on it, because there's this policy trade off that you recognize, you know, we want a company, we want someone to take control and to run, let's say, the local power. But once we've given them the ability to run the local power, we don't want them to charge a crazy high price. So then we regulate prices. And so you see this granting of a privilege tied with a price regulation. Very, It's very common in, 
in situations that some people worry have monopoly uh concerns power distributions one telephone things like this okay now the question is you know outside of these some of these regulated utilities examples are there other situations that are kind of like that and we could we could be worried well the most extreme uh uh example is is the breakup of uh uh, uh like at&t bell now i'm forgetting the exact details but basically they were given a bunch of of uh telephone contracts and, and things like that. And then they're broken up into a bunch of smaller systems. Now, this was something that was broken up by antitrust, okay, is, is broken up in a lawsuit to, to break up the company, but kind of was grounded in more government-granted privileges at the beginning. And so that, that's why I had this segue. Now, the question is, okay, outside of those examples, are there situations in which... Uh, uh, this sort of power ultimately accumulates. It depends. Um, I, I should have a better example off the top of my head uh, as someone who works in this, but but I, I'm skeptical of it being a super common thing in terms of just pure monopolization. Uh, I, I can't think of a really good monopolization clause. There are related things like price fixing and collusion that, that come to mind, but yeah, I should I should have a better example beyond AT and T. That would be because that that one's that one's easy because it's it it was a bunch of government, you know, one one arm of the government grants a monopoly and then the other government comes in and breaks it up and so it's like it's it's government versus government. So I get to have the easy out there. Well, I'm comfortable with your answer because I think in, in many cases, and I'm going to segue here then to a piece that you wrote earlier in the year uh, talking about uh, the 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 name of the the title gives it away. Uh, the title is. Uh, doomsday mergers a retrospective study of false alarms so i think our, our listeners can probably anticipate the theme of that 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 uh white paper um mm -hmm. but i since we can't sort of cite easily uh cases of monopolistic power over consumers that is to say consumers still have a choice regardless how big a company is mm -hmm. um let's talk about sort of the general sense that bigger is worse mm -hmm. it, it, in your view in your analysis looking as companies go from small to big and we're talking about very big you know billions and billions of dollars the amazons and the metas of the world um mm -hmm. i think there's a general fear that as companies get bigger their ability to uh, act uh, against consumer behavior uh, is it, 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 seemingly obvious and also at the expense of smaller competitors do you see a, a direct correlation between, let's say, uh, anti-consumer behavior and size, or are there real reasons that companies merge, become larger? I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head, economy of scale, but why would, uh, let's say, a company want to merge and become bigger if not for more yeah. market power? So let's, let's separate those two out. It's really important parts to it. The first is just about large and having power. And this was the tension that I alluded to earlier, that the way to get large is to satisfy customers, to have the best product, to do the best whatever. Take take any antitrust case you can think of. Everyone should agree at the beginning of the business, at least, the company succeeded, got big by, uh, by pleasing customers, whether that's Microsoft, you know, and having having the best personal computer operating system dealing with that, whether that's Google and search, whether that's Amazon and all of its lawsuits, like the way you get big is by doing good things for consumers. Okay, that's at least part of the force. Now, the question is, 
yes, that's true to some extent by pleasing consumers. Is there a situation in which it kind of goes too far? Um, the the second question, so so I think it's obvious that there are reasons for companies to get bigger. Companies push to get bigger internally. You know, Amazon famously lost a ton of money early on for a long time, okay, because they're making a bunch of long-term investments to get bigger, to achieve those economies of scale, but then allow them to keep prices low for longer, you know, improve shipping and all of these things, okay? So that's, they internally chose to do that. Um, they internally chose to become, you know, try to get big. That was the ultimate goal to, to, to pick a business model that eventually you get big, big enough that you can make it work. The problem is if it doesn't work, then you end up losing a ton of money. It's a risky gamble, but in, we can look ex post and say that, okay, yes, Amazon succeeded at this. Um, now, the question is, why can't all companies do that? Why don't you do that, do that internally? Why do you need to merge as a separate reason to get to scale? And I think that, that uh, there's lots of reasons. Some of them are more speculative. Some of them are are, are better backed by, by data. Uh, that not everyone can be so good internally. It's difficult. You know, we can pick out the success stories. The reason they're success stories is that it's hard to, you know, to, to, to go to scale internally. So sometimes one way that we can get around this is through something like an acquisition where there's something, you know, I'm a big company. I want to get into a new space. I'm going to acquire a company in order to kind of harness specialty in that. And there's some synergies hate that jargony uh you know business school term but there's some synergies between what we're doing and what the other companies are doing for example a lot of uh uh a lot of retail has been really behind on getting into the kind of delivery quick order shipment stuff that Amazon has has done very well okay so companies like target will purchase another company shipped and that specializes in that cuz Target didn't do home delivery. That wasn't their specialty. But by, by, by bringing in home delivery specialty into their company, now they can integrate fully. You know, I don't know the details of how this arrangement works, but they can integrate fully You know, what Target has historically done very well on the retail side with a company that specializes in uh, shipment. So there you have an acquisition, which is not quite the same thing as a merger, a bigger company purchasing a smaller company, which has clear, I think we can all understand the, the benefit to the company of bringing these two different companies together. Now, the real, the hard question is, what if there are two companies that kind of do the same thing? You know, it's not a, called a vertical integration between a shipping company and a retail company. These are companies that kind of do the same thing whether they're exactly the same thing or they're sort of competitors you know that's a, that's a harder sell um but that's the concern now in the subway example that we have a we have a company work capital that runs jimmy johns as another one that you know after they're being acquired they're going to run uh subway as well and now okay subway is not going to necessarily it's not as obvious that subway is going to make jimmy johns more more uh efficient in the same way that Target and Shipped kind of go together. And that's the question that people get hung up on, on these horizontal mergers between competitors. Are there efficiencies? And they're, they're, it's not as obvious that there are, but let me throw out a few possible ones that may be relevant in this case. Okay. In 
fast food and 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 food distribution more generally, this is a super hard market. Margins are thin, kind of like retail overall. Margins are thin, stores open up, franchises open up and close. A possible argument is that by having a company like Roar Capital own multiple uh, of these, these brands, you know, exactly how they own it doesn't necessarily matter. What they're actually providing is the capital to storm to, to weather the storms, to go through the ups and downs. And that the thing that really kills restaurants is not that they're not viable over a long term, it's that they're not viable for this year when business is bad. But but if they're still around in the next year, they could be bad. And maybe the benefit is having the capital there by having this big diversified company that can then facilitate loans and and, and things like that. Again, I don't, I don't, that may not be true. That may be just sales pitch, but it's plausible to me. No, I I, I appreciate it. We're talking about strategic mergers where yeah. you know they complement each other, and who knows? It might be as simple a thing like they they can buy lettuce in even larger bulk, and mm-hmm. that is enough to you know make Jimmy John's and Subway more profitable. Uh, my point, and I hope it comes through in our my questions and your answers, that it's very difficult for the government to understand when it's a hostile kind of a, a merger. Mm-hmm. Not. And I think what I really like about uh, your writing, and I'm going to pivot here now, I referenced it earlier, to uh, if we look backward, and you're talking about prospectively, might this be dangerous or might this be, you know, useful, a useful merger? Uh, But if we look backward, we are, you know, the the history books are, or the newspapers are replete with all these doomsday, as you quote, doomsday predictions of these mergers that if they were allowed to pass, if, if, if the FEC and the Department of Justice are, quote, asleep at the wheel and allow these mergers to happen, we're all, as you say, doomed. Uh, I think uh, I'm going to cite just a few of the cases that our listeners, I'm sure, will remember in the not-too-distant past. Uh, I'm going to start off with the first one you cite in your paper, which is, uh, how did it go when Amazon purchased Whole Foods? I remember hearing that this was the, the I don't know, death app of between clicks and bricks that, you know, we'd have this conglomerate that no other grocery store and no other online uh, uh, ordering could could uh, survive this uh, this future monopoly. Share with our listeners, in the, with the wisdom of hindsight, why wasn't this the end of the world? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, and it's a fun example to start with, especially because I don't have the quote in front of me, but Lena Khan wrote in the New York Times that this would lead to basically we'll all be feudal serfs under Amazon once they have Whole Foods. You know, in in hindsight, there's been so many stories about the struggles of 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 the the merger and Amazon moving into Whole Foods. I think that I think the with all of these, I think an important thing to remember is how resilient markets are like the US has ups and downs, whatever it is, like people try to have monopoly power, even if they succeed for a little bit, there's ups and downs and competitions right on their heels. And so I think if you're ever going to bet kind of broad against the US economy, that's a bad idea. And so when when you have a bunch of people just continually saying, oh, this thing's going to be bad, this thing's going to be bad, you look back and you see economic growth doop, 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 keep going up, they, they tend to be wrong. Uh, so so why were these particularly wrong? I think, I think they were over-optimistic in the same way that maybe Amazon was over-optimistic of, of the efficiencies. Like they, they saw that, oh, maybe now Amazon and Whole Foods would be just so effective that they would then have a bunch of power. And it just turns out that there are diminishing returns at, a, at, at some point people hit a scale and there are things that they aren't good at. 
Amazon is not good at making phones, right? They couldn't sell their their Fire Phone. They they really struggled at that. And maybe getting into foods is somewhere in between. It's not it's not the things that they did great at, like putting up, you know, book or uh, selling books and and making web servers. But it's not terrible. And so they've kind of kept Whole Foods in kind of the the, the same spot. Um, I, I I think the the, the fundamental thing among all the the doomsday mergers that we talk about is just pure hyperbole um that that if you go out there and you read newspapers good bad or indifferent or sorry good or bad not indifferent good or bad you're going to hear people make extravagant claims and turns out good or bad those extravagant claims tend to be wrong most mergers don't have that bad of an effect or that good of an effect because if they were if they were it's kind of a the inherent contradiction of these things if they were just so good why wouldn't they emerge 10 years earlier why wouldn't they notice 2 years before it just happens to be that because people are fighting in these markets incremental purchases here and there just don't make that big of an effect sometimes they're good sometimes they're bad but you know, when you see people in the newspaper that are claiming this is going to revolutionize the beer industry or this is going to destroy the beer industry, probably the beer industry is just going to keep going like it was regardless of this merger. Again, yeah, I don't want to go through all the uh, instances in your paper. You do mention the Anheuser-Busch uh, acquisition of SAB Miller, which was supposed to wipe out the craft beer market or Google and Fitbit merging and uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and with the wisdom of hindsight, it seems to do uh, be much ado about nothing um, so let's, uh, we're getting close to the end of our time together. And I, I, I always love to ask experts or people who study matters like this, if they were king for a day, if you were head of the SEC, if, if Lena Khan, uh, goes and finds something else to do with her time and they appoint you to be head of the SEC, what criteria would you use, uh, to determine whether, uh, when bigger is better for the consumer or when bigger is worse for the consumer, where, where should the government draw the line and actually step into this wonderful free market that seems to be chugging along, as you say, just fine without intervention. When is it appropriate for the government to step in? You know, what are the danger signs? You've you've actually already answered it, which is when is it going to be better for the consumer? Okay, that has been an overarching guidepost called the consumer welfare standard that has directed antitrust for the last 40 years. Current enforcers, Lena Khan is an exemplar of it, but a lot of others as well, do not want to use that as the lodestar okay and so i would i would push back that everything is about will it help the consumer or will it not with the with the caveat is like you know how certain are we because we never know in 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 practice and how likely are we to make a mistake one way or the other the way that i would direct my focus and it and this is a little bit unfair to the current ftc but but i would direct my focus away from these big picture uh uh cases these these headline grabbing cases because most of the good that the ftc can do which they they're, they're still doing this so i don't mean to put them down too much but most of the good that they can do is very mundane stuff these contractors are colluding on prices okay this this local dialysis company has bought up every single dialysis clinic in the you know greater metro whatever greater metro area that sort of stuff I mean, hospitals merging in local markets like this is the sort of stuff that you really have the clear example in the story of why consumers would be hurt versus the the current DOJ case or the 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 lawsuit against Amazon about its integration of Prime and and uh, other stuff like these are 
they're great in terms of grabbing headlines because everyone knows Google, everyone knows Amazon. You can get people riled up, good, bad, or indifferent. But it's really kind of you have to spin yourself into wheels, you know, you have to spin yourself into knots. I mean, uh, to try to come up with a case in which Google is like hurting these other hurting consumers, not hurting Bing or not hurting Microsoft, hurting consumers uh, by having a worse product. Right. You have to you have to say you have to find ways to say stuff like, you know, Amazon has a bad search engine because of certain things it's done. When if you ask anyone, you know, you poll people, this isn't just, you know, me thinking from experience, you poll people and something like 90% of consumers are satisfied, very satisfied with their Amazon experience, like a crazy number compared to others. And so I would, as much as you can, ditch the the focus on the, the big companies that get headlines, focus on the local markets where you have a very clear story, a very clear th- economic theory of how you hurt consumers and how this merger, how this, you know, practice of collusion or price fixing or something, how that hurts consumers, focus all of your energy on that. Do as much of it as you can. Block as many local mergers as you can that are in this uh, this environment. And let's, let's back off from this other more speculative stuff that you hope will work in court. Uh, but then it turns out that if you look at the FTC's track record, they're O for whatever in court because courts reject it when you go on a limb. If you bring normal mainline cases of you know big company merging with a similar big company then you know you're 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 not going out on such a limb and so you know there you, there you have a chance to actually implement what what you want and i'm reminded i was watching some of the testimony in some of these cases and it was a i thought a pretty provocative statement by a senator who said he lived in a small town i think it was in missouri and there was five gas stations and every monday the um, owners of the gas station sat down for lunch and decided what the price of the gas would be in that town uh, that was found to be anti-competitive, right? That's like, uh, you, that's collusion. Uh, uh, and it was, you know, brought in front of the FTC and, mm-hmm. you know, it was prosecuted. So they should focus on those kinds of things rather than these, as you say, headline grabbing mega mergers. And there's lots of work to be done on this. Like the FTC is constantly in front of Congress asking for more money because they don't think they have enough resources. Well, if you have a certain amount of dollars that you can spend as an agency and you devote a bunch of it to going after these big cases that may not win, probably won't win. You know, that means you have less to investigate these local markets. And so when I think when you're thinking about, you know, where are you actually going to get the most bang for your buck in terms of helping consumers? Again, it's always about helping consumers. I, I sh- I've been a little bit flipping here. It could also be about helping workers or or things like that. You know, the, the trading partners or that sometimes people use. Okay. Not, Importantly, not about helping the people you're competing against. Competition ends up, uh, you know, running out competitors. That's we're not worried about them. We're worried about, you know, the other side of the market, and that's who you want to uh, uh, try to protect. So devote your resources to protecting those areas in which you are using your resources in those areas that we are fairly confident have a good uh, return on their kind of investment. That's right. So we don't. We're not advocates for uh, uh, competition for competition's sake. If if Amazon outcompetes its its competitors, so be it. It does it by making consumers happy. And so- that's a, that's a big change that's happened in the antitrust world over the last sixty years. Sixty years ago, you could bring a lawsuit in which the victim of the lawsuit was the the people who lost to the you know the new competitor. That's just not a thing anymore because because of antitrust evolution because of economics being brought in 
now the the lodestar at the courts is are the consumers are the other side of the market are they going to benefit from that and this is the type of thing that lena khan has been vocal since law school that this is not what she is about right it's not okay it's the problem with amazon in the amazon antitrust paradox is that prices are too low right whereas most of us when we see low prices for consumers uh, you know of course putting aside concerns about you know if if putting aside very extreme examples of you know slave labor or something like in general low prices are good for consumers in in Khan's worldview and and the thing that brought her to fame that is not true that's not that's not what we or sorry that could be true but that's not what antitrust is solely concerned with. And I think that that's fundamentally the wrong way to think about it. I think it's destructive to markets. And I think it's, you know, the courts have, have been, have been, uh, you know, pushing back with good, with good cause. So to bring this full circle and put a, a bow on it, we've got, we started off by saying that the purpose of your organization is to combine the wisdom of, of economic theory and law, the nexus of those two uh, sciences or studies mm -hmm. and apply them to policy. What you're saying is over time, um, antitrust legislation has become more informed by economics and has stopped focusing on, you know, worrying about competitors that are outcompeted and and disappear, and rather return their focus to what really matters is the benefit of consumers and, as you say, workers and yeah. welcome. Yeah, yeah. um, and a, a recent development with a more, dare I say, progressive perspective, which is returning back to ensuring that smaller firms or competitive firms remain competitive and are not outcompeted with firms that have lower prices, better service, and, you know, all things consumers mm -hmm. want. Let's turn the whole thing on its head. So we're, we're, this perhaps is perhaps a, a glitch in the arc towards better um, antitrust um, uh, legislation and, and action. Uh, perhaps maybe the ship is turning. Uh, we got to wrap it up here. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can um, uh, find your writing and please uh, uh, share with us how to, we can read more about you. But uh, close that loop for me are we have we turned the, are we turning the ship or is this a glitch in the uh, arc towards better ftc enforcement i i think it's a it's a sign of the the us legal system that it's a slow thing to change it comes out of the common law system it's you know it's not that a few intellectuals came into you know antitrust seminars and said we're going to change the world and therefore it changed it took decades and decades of convincing judges and, and you know, people at the agencies, lots of people getting consensus that the there's a better way to do antitrust. And over over, you know, from the 70s, you know, up till 2010, that was kind of a, a very clear direction in which lots of people were moving. Now there's a pushback. There's been a pushback to trying to change that. But you you it takes more than just convincing one chair of the FTC. The courts need to be convinced, and so far they have not. And so I I don't We'll see. I mean, I could come up here and say that, you know, this is going to be the, the end of the American market unless you, uh, you know, unless you support ICLE. But as I said at the beginning, the American markets are pretty resilient. And so I'm never going to bet against the U.S. economy, barring some very extreme thing. And so I so I don't I don't think it's going to be too bad. There's there's bad policy here and there, but that that stuff gets to to be worked out. Um so where can our uh, listeners yeah. find your work if they want uh, more wisdom than this 30 minutes can offer? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, laweconcenter.org is our 
uh, is our organization's website. Lots of stuff on there. Great search engine there to find everything that we write from academic papers to op-eds to quotes in, in local newspapers, things like that. Uh, great spot to find. I also write a substack that I mentioned earlier, economicforces.xyz. Uh, it, it's on Substack. I, we write a lot on antitrust and different policy stuff. That's with a, a colleague uh, at University of, of Mississippi, Josh Hendrickson. So I write a lot of stuff there. And embarrassingly, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. So if, or X, sorry, I, I, I'm too old for this uh, on X. And so you can find me at Brian Albrecht, Brian C. Albrecht on X too. And so there I, I, I talk a lot about my frustrations with FTC there. Wonderful. I'll continue to read it and I uh, hope you'll consider coming back if if in fact it turns out that uh, Senator Warren was right and Subway does create a sandwich shop monopoly and we're all forced to eat uh, Subway sandwiches uh, uh, for, for lunch. I hope you'll come back if that were to happen. When that happens, I will definitely be back, but hopefully we can find some other case to talk again. All right. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for, for joining uh, Hubwonk, Brian. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're grateful, of course, if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.